So a couple of years ago, when I was reading Jonathan Haidt and listening to his lectures, I heard him talk about this book a couple of times. Um, it's American Nations by Colin Woodard. Subtitle is A History of the Eleven Rival Regional Cultures of North America. <clears throat> I hadn't heard about this before, um, so it was kind of new, uh, kind of a new idea for me. Because like reading Jonathan Haidt, he's like in uh, Righteous Mind, he's talking about uh, like moral taste buds and kind of like you know the different kinds of people and the different moral frameworks that people have. And so he was also talking, he made reference to this um, idea about there being like 11 distinct cultures in North America. Mm-hmm. Now that kind of determines the, the, uh, you know, the, the value framework of, of those different cultures. So you, just like you can compare like two different cultures, you know, assuming they have, well, first of all, you can assume that a given culture has its own kind of homogenous set of, of uh, you know, cultural values. And then you can ca- compare that with another country like he does with, like broadly Western culture and then like Indian culture, for instance. And he talks about how he he went to India and was kind of it's kind of like culture shock because everything was so different, and that kind of prompted him to to look for the commonalities and look for the the commonalities that are expressed in different ways in different cultures. But when you're looking at North America, you can actually find breakdowns and different and differences within North America itself. So that kind of made me curious, so I got a copy of his book and uh, read it recently and then recommended it to you guys. So I hope that, uh, I hope you enjoyed my recommendation. Well, I'll, I'll just say that I I find it really enjoyable uh, and really informative mm-hmm. so far. Like, what do you guys think? I love it. Yeah. Um, there's a, I don't know how much education you had in, on uh, American history none. In, in Canada, but uh, none. Uh, well, that's close to what I got in, in the U.S. <laughs> but uh, no, they obviously there are you know they focus in quite a bit on some of the major um, points of history in the U.S. But uh, the the perspective that you get from this book uh, that the United States had these um, very distinct uh, cultures and reasons for being and ideas about themselves. And, and their ways of um, going about things, uh, their uh, religious ideas, their influences um, and connections to and loyalties or disloyalties to the, uh, the royalty back in uh, the United Kingdom in England. Um, all of these things, I, I mean, you know, Granted, it's many years since I've I've had any kind of formal education on any of these things, but um, but to revisit them in, in such a refreshing way uh, has been super enjoyable. Yeah, uh, I love the guy's writing. He's always quoting from um, uh, people in history who were part of part of the scene. Yeah, so basically, like primary sources, like he he quotes you know letters that might have been written or you know, legal documents or something, just to give a flavor of what's going on and observations. Like, you know, um, someone from from England will come over and then share their observation on what the people, are, like, you know, what the colonists are like and, you know, what they're getting up to in the, you know, over in the New World. And oftentimes, uh, oftentimes those statements will reveal a lot about the, you know, the cultures that are developing, that were developing, you know, what, um, 300-something years ago. Um, it, well, and that's what... 
That's what stood out for me. Well, I, I want to follow up on something you said, because I didn't get an education in American history. I was focused mostly on like Canadian history and European history. And so when we were learning in school, this would have been, been, this would have been in grade, like, uh, grade eight and nine, I think, learning about Canadian history. I just remember, um, you know, I, I, I'll try not to externalize blame, but I had a horrible <laughs> social studies teacher, um, which was where we learned Canadian history. And he just kind of um, turned me off of history completely. Like I thought, and, and it wasn't just his fault, because I think the curriculum itself was just <laughs> seemingly purposefully designed to be as boring as possible. Mm -hmm. There was nothing to, to, get you, to get most kids interested in it. It was just boring as hell. So I had no interest really in the 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 course itself, the the material, and then absolutely no interest after that in um, doing my own reading into Canadian history. Um, it was just like, well, you know, why would I want to subject myself to you know hours and hours of just utter boredom? So this was this was nice to to be able because there is some Canadian history in here too. Um, it was nice to to have it presented in such a way that it, that actually makes it interesting. And I don't know how much that is um, me having changed over the years and uh, or how much it is just the presentation of the material, probably a bit of both. Um, but I found myself now much more interested in not only this time period, but just in, in finding out, you know, what happened and how it, how it affects, um, how it has contributed to what, uh, what the present is, you know, how it contributes to the present. And just to clarify, the time period we're talking about is is roughly around, you know, the, the 1490s uh, and a little earlier, maybe around the time of, you know, Columbus's discovery of the U.S. and events that happened just prior to that time, um, leading through to, you know, the American Revolution and mm -hmm. and he even alludes to more contemporary times and, and yeah. influences from then on. It's nice because it adds a lot more color to the picture of, of American history rather than, you know, you kind of get like a black and white, yeah, we came up to, you know, for freedom and then, uh, you know, we kicked a lot of butt and now we got freedom and we're the best people in the world, you know, <laughs> or you've got the other, like there are a bunch of goddamn slaveholders. They came and they, you know, murdered everybody and genocide is the worst genocide the world has ever seen. But, you know, when you read this book, you get an idea for how each different group that came over with their different motives mm -hmm. contributed differently to, to this. Some people did their best to, you know, live with, uh, you know, respect and, you know, just intermingle with like native populations. Others, they had no need for anybody. They didn't want anyone. They wanted their own religious purity and, you know, they, uh, they didn't want to intermingle with their own, you know, neighbors necessarily if they went bowling on, you know, Sunday or mm -hmm. something like that. And you, so you get an idea of just how important, uh, culture is like you, you get to see like the DNA, I guess, of these different cultural groups and how they left a lasting impact on today's political political mm -hmm. scenery. I yeah. mean, and you get a better idea of why people have different attitudes towards different things and how that even manifests in, in recent elections. Like he's got a map of, you know, was it the Trump elections, yeah. how people voted for Trump and then how, you know, just centuries ago that, you know, this identity, these different identities, how they, they map right onto how, you know, people's different voting attitudes. Yeah. And the that's a, a good point to get into just a little bit is why why things are that way like why these 11 distinct cultures have 
um, persisted and persisted in specific geographic areas. Like, um, Adam, can you just bring up the map for a bit? Like this is this is the map that he gives, uh, like a contemporary map of of um, you know what it looks like today. And what that basically started out started out like was these individual colonies on the east coast and in the like southern United States, Mex- northern Mexico, um, and how like starting from those small beginnings, you know, to the with the advance westward, they kind of took their cultures with them and developed a few new cultures or you know implanted a few new cultures in the process. Now the way um, you can yeah you can take that off now. The the way that happens is well this gets back to a, another book that I haven't read yet but uh, which is kind of an inspiration for this one that um, I'm going to get to that is David Hackett Fisher's Albion Seed uh, from 1999. So Fisher's idea was that there were these four what he called like British folkways. So people from four like distinct regions in uh, in Britain made their way to the colonies and established basically four four separate um, nations uh, cultures and that so so Fisher's I, what Fisher does is basically trace all of these aspects you know to these regions and cultures in uh, in the, what's now the UK right and the um, Woodard doesn't go that far he basically sticks mostly just to the just to the colonists like he he doesn't go back and look for like the the specific origins you know back where they came from he just says well this is how this is what they were like when they came and that determined you know the course of history and the the reason that happens is that apparently this is um um well apparently this is the way it happens so like a group of colonists will come to a new place and their culture you know the the just the the structure of their belief and the society they essentially set up determines what it will be like for the next, you know, for the coming generations, mm-hmm. because they they basically set the pattern, set the template, and then new immigrants, whether or not they come from that culture originally, tend to integrate and assimilate into that established culture. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's why they they persist. It's because the basically the template was set down by those first colonists and the way th- the way they did things, and. Uh, and th- and that has persisted to the present day, and so like Corey was saying, that's that that even persists in the way. Well, it it shows up in numerous ways, and one of the ways is in um, like voting ha- habits. That uh, you can you can look at a map of the 2016 presidential election and see regional differences that that line up with the with these 11 cultures. So, for example, like in the um, in the south, uh, you know, the southern states, like on the border with Mexico, you've got El, you've got El Norte, you know, very um, very Democrat. The left coast, so like you know, San Francisco, Seattle, all the way up into Canada, like um, you know, Vancouver in British Columbia, um, all the way up to Alaska too. That's very Democratic. Of course, East Coast very Democratic. Tidewater, New Netherland, um, Yankeedom. And then uh, the Midlands, the kind of like circle around Yankeedom, um, are kind of like they'll go either way. Like they're they're kind of more centrist, so so um, not as polarized. And of course, the Deep South, um, primarily Republican, Greater Appalachia, s- strongly Republican. Same with the Far West. Hey, Adam, could you put up that map again, just so people can yeah. get get a sense of all you know th- those regions and where they are geographically? Well, yeah. So just so we'll leave the map up for a second. I'll just describe a bit, like um, 
uh, just a bit of the history that he lays out because he goes through each one pretty much chronologically. You know the how each how each nation was founded. So the the earliest one is actually El Norte because the it was the Spanish first that were you know colonizing down and up through Mexico, and uh, by by 1595 they basically reached where uh, you know what would be you know the southern United States now, so around, around Texas and New Mexico and around there, and um, then the the next new the next you know the next nation to develop was New France. So up in Canada, the east coast of Canada, and that, like for me, I well, I found um, I found with all of these, with the descriptions of all of these nations, you you kind of admire certain bits and then you know are kind of repulsed by other bits, and I kind of liked the 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 new French. Um, maybe it's because I'm a quarter new French myself. Um, uh, well, I thought they were interesting too, and I'm not. Yeah, I'm okay. not Canadian. Either. Well, so the thing about the about the French um, were that like one was Samuel de Champlain. So you know, I knew that from my Canadian history. That name, you know, that at least that name managed to to stay in my memory despite uh, my history teacher's very poor teaching. But um, uh, Fisher, the guy that I referenced, uh, that wrote Albion Seed, actually wrote another book. 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, called Champlain's Dream about this culture, this nation. Because um, Champlain and the, the French, they had this idea that they were going to go and that, and, you know, establish this new France, but, uh, and they were going to, you know, keep it using the, the, the French system that they'd inherited, so it was going to be a feudal society, um, just like France, but they, in order to, to make it su- succeed, they would have to basically integrate to a degree with the native population they'd have to establish good relations so that's that's actually what happened in the in the early years of the of the the new french they they immediately established as good relations as possible engaged in trade they would mingle you know back and forth so that the french would send people to live with the indians and uh, and learn their skills. So the French adopted all kinds of native practices and technologies, you know, like from something as simple as you know snowshoes and canoes to um, you know um, social habits like uh, like the dances and the, and the, the kind of some of the ceremonies that they'd um, that they do. They shared in all of that, and you know, and and um, married too. So they had they they basically mixed you know mixed their two. Um, races or, you know, uh, mixed their genes, essentially, and that led to the Métis. And it was actually, you know, it was it was interesting to read that because you contrast that to, um, well, that was 1604 when they, when they established that colony. And then you contrast that to Tidewater. So these would be the first colonies in the eastern United States, like Jamestown. And, um, you know, which nowadays is like, what, uh, the east, co- east coast of, like, you know, North Carolina, South Carolina, um, you know, Virginia. The that 1607 so 3 years later they came over with a totally different idea that they were they were going to recreate their culture their their society it was also going to be this aristocratic society but they were coming as conquerors mm-hmm. so the first colony how does uh how does Woodard put it he basically says that you know uh, i think he's i think he's referencing Jamestown that it was basically a corporate owned military base mm-hmm. so they were coming to to take over conquer and steal and like so, totally diametrically opposed to the the attitude of the French, just a bit north of them. And um, but in common with the the French, you look at what the, at how the Spanish were doing things. The Spanish also um, didn't have well, they didn't have like a, a racial ideology like would develop in the Deep South. 
um, they had they, they were kind of more had more in common with the new French in the sense of um, like they had nothing against the natives um, except for their cultural practices. Like they they thought the natives were culturally backwards, so they were going to to teach them the right ways, the Christian ways, and integrate them into their own culture. So they developed this kind of like missionary system to to bring neophytes, you know, um, people to people from the native population to teach and br and bring up as good Christians. And that developed, uh, like in New France with the Métis, into the mestizo culture. So like uh, so mixed um, Spanish and native. And so there's a, so um, by I can't remember what he says, but like by by a certain time there were um, just like in Mexico and South America. Like I think the if you look at the gene studies, like in uh, David Reich's book, like um, it's pretty much like everyone everyone living there now has Spanish and native ancestry, um, just because the culture's mixed. You know, unlike in most of the American colonies, um, where they didn't mix. Where it was more categorized by warfare, but the the but one of the differences between New France and El Norte was that the this missionary culture that developed, basically it was like one of, one of these accounts of people coming to visit and then saying what they saw is that they they came and looked at, w at what it was like these actual missions, um, with the you know the native neophytes um, like trying to like learn their way and earn their way into their, that new society. He said it resembled a slave colony, right? Because the in practice, you know, it, it was it, it wasn't highly, as good as highly yeah. repressive and yeah. and uh, and oppressive. Yeah, and because there was no incentive to actually grant the neophytes their kind of like full membership, because um, as long as they were as long as they were um, at that low level, they could essentially be treated as servants or slaves. So, uh, so yeah, and they were making a good profit off of yeah. all of their labor. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, so, um, you know, I, I was mentioning a little earlier that uh, my history or, or social studies education was quite limited. And, um, you know, you mentioned El Norte and, uh, and Tidewater and uh, New France, and, and there are a bunch of others we haven't even gotten to yet, which never even made their way into the pages of, of my the history lessons I received. So, like... Um, you know, you grow up hearing well, the 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 story of that. We'll say is like the the education that you were given was given from a particular example. So mm. they were looking at history through a certain lens, and that lens, uh, if I understand it correctly, is more of like the Yankeedom kind of. That's exactly what I was going to get to. Um, and so it it gives you a real good down to like an actual like map of reality for the situation as it is, which is something that he talks about in the book is that um, you look at all of these different maps, you know, the electoral maps, et cetera, um, geographical, including state lines and stuff, but the state lines don't really mean anything. I mean, it's just an arbitrary thing, right? Uh, the El Norte, for example, I mean, you know, half of it's in Mexico, half of it is in the U.S. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's just an arbitrary line. And yet there are these cultures, each one having their own desires and ambitions, uh, trying to come up with um, ways to become cohesive and create, um, what is it, like peace packs in a sense in order to get certain things done. But it's a completely different um, view of the situation in the United States as it is, mm -hmm. um, 
compared to just looking at it like, oh, Ohio voted, yeah. you know, whatever way. Well, so uh, you you mentioned um, this kind of perspective that, that we grew up, or this lens from which we yeah. came to understand what the United mm-hmm. States is, as this mm-hmm. kind of almost homogenous yep. uh, you know, vision. Yes. And, like, you know, one of, one of the few things I remember is, and the pilgrims left the English country to come to the United States to seek religious freedom. And they landed on Plymouth Rock to, and then they got their religious freedom, and then they made peace with the Indians, and that's how we have Thanksgiving. I mean, that's really the extent of it, right? So then you read about Yankeedom, which was established by these uh, these Puritans, and and you touch about this, uh, you touch on this quite well in your article recently, mm-hmm. Harrison, and how the you know the the Puritans in in trying to escape uh, the religious oppression of of England had their own uh, religious oppression, and and these guys were bastards. Yeah. Uh, these guys were were hard on themselves and 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 uh like you mentioned earlier Corey, you know they had all of these kinds of religiously inspired so-called rules that they imposed on themselves with harsh punishments if you did certain things in the sabbath and 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 whatnot and uh they could be quite violent with one another you know you if you've ever uh seen the play um the crucible by arthur miller about the salem witch hunts i mean all of all of that uh all of that that kind of god awful self righteous higher you know high and mighty uh perspective that's that's our you know that's the real yeah you know that that's the real uh one of the real seeds of of what the United States is and something that these uh that the yankee dem and and the Puritans seems to have had in common with a lot of these separate nations would seem to be. You know, a lot of them had uh, some biblical foundations uh, as a as a substructure of their culture, and they were all God's chosen people. Mm-hmm. Uh, want, you know, wanting to come to create a new Zion. So you had the you had them. You had the uh, the Quakers of the Midlands, although kind of diametrically uh, opposite to the Puritans in in their uh, sincere openness and and very um kind of embracing of all different cultures and and groups but who also had a very strong biblical um were informed by a very strong biblical uh way of life and um there there were one or two others well i just want to talk about the, the quakers a bit because like you mentioned they were very very much ideologically opposed you know to the to the puritans even though they were both christian um you know christian groups the quakers came over kind of like the new french with the idea of um well they were actually pro religious uh freedom mm-hmm. so the the puritans basically wanted religious freedom for themselves but not for anyone else um so it was their their freedom to to oppress every other religious group including the quakers you know, to whom they would, well, they would like cut off their ears and mutilate them in various ways to, you know, label them and punish them for being, um, you know, heathen Quakers. The Quakers, on the other hand, would take anyone in, like they, they'd take in like the Germans. Um, so like the, that's the origin of like the Amish and the Mennonites and, and groups like that. And they'd, they'd pretty much just 
they um, like the way Murray Rothbard describes them is they're basically like were these essentially these anarchists that um, they were very much against any kind of um, government control. Like um, they they often even though, even though they had they'd had government buildings they'd they were used very not very often. They had a court you know a court building that was used maybe two or three times a year because they resolved everything you know one on one or with mediators in like, interpersonally as opposed to in the court system. But they also um, like the New French, that's the point I was going to make, is that they, they went there with the idea that the best way to survive and to live and to, to create a, a good society would be to have good relations with the natives. So they would actually buy land from the from the native populations they you know they'd say okay well you know what what can i pay you for it and they'd buy the land and then it would be theirs and they'd trade like the french with the, the natives and um again so totally opposed to the to what the you know the yankees and the and the tidewater you know aristocrats would do just you know just go in and take it um they actually had good relations but and it was probably um well that's just the point I wanted to make about them, that they were they were actually the ones advocating for religious freedom. And it was a constant battle for them because they were constantly having to, you know, because this was before, um, well, it was before the revolution. So they're still like nominally under control of, uh, you know, the, the king and the, the British government. Mm-hmm. But um, there was a constant struggle to keep what they had established and kind of like the the, the rights and the systems that they'd that they'd had in practice for these you know these decades until the the crown kind of came in to take control again um, so it was this basically the like for the Quakers it was this short um, successful while it la- while it lasted but ultimately failed experiment in um, like kind of total self-government kind of like the libertarians dream um they were you know like i said they they just had nothing but disdain for leadership you know oftentimes when they'd be when there would be um like appointments for you know government positions the individuals like appointed would refuse to take the position because they you know they didn't want to be in government and so it was a a constant struggle with the you know with the yankees and with the with the crown to to um to essentially you know to keep their freedom American freedom, but now, but that that just uh, just really briefly that leads to another point is that a lot of these groups had different notions of what freedom meant. So you know nowadays, you know the the U.S. on the world stage talks about you know freedom, and it's known as either with either sincerely or with you know a hint of irony as you know the you know the land of freedom and spreading freedom and democracy, right? And that's what a lot of Americans believe, as if there was this one identifiable, identifiable concept of freedom. But no, you actually break it down, and and you know even behind the propaganda layer of it, and the the actual beliefs about freedom is that they're vastly disparate in these different regions too, like different ideas about what uh, what freedom actually means. Mm-hmm. Like for example, in I can't remember was it, if it was Tidewater or the Deep South or both, but there was a an idea of. Liberty that is yeah. vastly different from, um, you know, the concept that, you know, that you hold just kind of your common sense juvenile dictionary idea of what liberty means. But for them, liberty were, liberties were, I don't know if you want to say earned, but they were granted basically by status, by social status. And so if you were, a, um, if you had, the more liberties you had, the higher you were up in the, in the hierarchy. And this was moral and right and proper. So slaves who had no liberties, well, it was because, you know, they, they were less 
people. They were less of a person. And, you know, this was something that was deeply entrenched in society to the, to the point that um, he makes the, the remark in the book that slave, that they need, that the South wasn't created for slavery, but that the South needed slavery in order to continue to exist mm -hmm. because you could, you know, there was only so many ways that you could maximize your personal liberties at the expense of other people. And at a certain point, you know, there's, you know, you, if people are mobile, they can leave, they can go, they can, you know, work their way up the ladder, or they could, you know, share crop or whatever they're doing. Um, you, you lose those slaves, right? They're not slaves, but they're, you know, servants or they're just people lower than you. And, you know, if you feel accustomed to, you know, this liberated lifestyle where you don't have to work, where you get to do all of the things that, you know, like the ancient Greeks, you Plato, you're like Aristotle, you get to sit and think about the, you know, the great things in the world and plan your great estate and think about how you're going to expand your estate in, in the, the next spring and what you're going to do with this great harvest and all of these organizational and philosophical religious things that you get to spend your, your time and your mind on, you know, you, um, you, you can't keep that and, and have to, you know, go out and, and, and work mm -hmm. you need. And, you know, the more people that you have to do all the work for you, the greater your liberties are. So there was yeah. definitely a lot of manna, I guess you'd say in this idea of liberty for people in, in the deep South. And I think Tidewater, yeah. but not as entrenched. Um, mm -hmm. and it was something that was just diametrically opposed to the ideas of, you know, like the, the Yanks and all of these other people who, you know, were so much more, so much more authoritarian in a strange, like there's just authoritarian in a, in just a slightly different way, mm -hmm. you know, they're still authoritarian, but, um, you know, they, they were, we're going to conquer the world. He points out that like the ideologies of like manifest destiny and, um, you know, the idea that America is supposed to go forth and conquer the world for God. Those were very Yankee concepts mm -hmm. and that, you know, it was up until like the early 19th century that um, they still believed they were going to, you know, conquer every other nation, um, you mm -hmm. know, of these 11 nations that existed and that still, you know, he argues still exists today, but that it was definitely at the, at that time, it was, um, it was very conscious that these people are different. We need to, you know, it's a different nation. We need to make, force them to submit to our Yankee idealism, you know, mm -hmm. and which is, you know, manifested in like the Captain America principle mm -hmm. that we, that, you know, is so rife for parody and it's, you know, shows horrendous results, mm -hmm. you know, just all over the world. Well, that that's, um, I think the quote was, uh, I believe in uh, liberty, but not equality. Yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah, you know, that what's fascinating about this book is that you get the, the kind of spool, the full, the spool spectrum, <laughs> the full spectrum of, uh, of authoritarianism in, in these different nations. Yeah. Um, and, uh, there's, you know, from, uh, from the, the Midlands and the Quakers to, to the Puritans, uh, to, and then increasingly to the kind of slave owning nations of, of tied water and the deep South. And then this, this kind of, um, uh, this, this hyper, um, uh, deep South, uh, authoritarianism of the Barbadians who, who kept slaves in Barbados, you know, had, had kind of, uh, farmed out this little island as much as they possibly could and needed to expand. So they came to the deep south and, um, and, and began to, at first, you know, 
uh, bring in African slaves in the, in the I think, late, late 1600s until it expanded into this entire slave you know, industry and, and huge plantations of the South. Well, um, just one thing I want to just make a comment on how interesting it is that it's these individuals, these founding fathers, quote unquote, mothers, um, and, you know, just the founding people. And it's their character that has determined the shape and the contour and the trajectory of the, you know, the generations and generations and generations. It's their marks of character are still reflected in these these nations today, which I find absolutely fascinating because you I mean you when you think about how important character is, you know, you don't it's not something that's really talked about a lot these days. But when you look at it in the context of these founding fathers and mothers and the choices that they make, what they will allow, what they will not allow, you know, how they interact with other people, you know, these marks of character become marks on history. Mm-hmm. You know, they become the marks of history. And that ties in with the Yankeedom and um, as well the New Netherlands. So that one in particular I thought was incredibly interesting because it, it really, really held over um, as far as, you know, we're on this island and we're, we're doing things the way that we did in the Netherlands, which is we're going to tolerate everyone, mm-hmm. we're going to have all the diversity, and we're just going to make money. And what is New York City <laughs> if not that in its entirety? Well, that, that's funny that you, that you went to that, Adam, because I have the page open to, you know, Founding New, New Netherland, and uh, I'm from New York City, and uh, <clears throat> and uh, the the lovely thing about New York, um, if you appreciate diversity, you know, I went to school uh, with with you know, I had a Puerto Rican friend, a friend from Ecuador, Trinidad, China, uh, South Korea, um, Jewish kids, uh, all you know, everybody. It was a real melting pot. Um, and that, and that's really how, you know, this was a, uh, this was a place that was founded on, like you said, making money and, and anybody who wanted to go there and just, and make money and be embraced by, uh, this, this capital innovation and and capitalism, uh, probably in its rawest sense found success there. So it became this kind of center of commerce um, New York eventually, um, New Netherland eventually became this kind of intermediary between uh, the the types of um, uh, corporate merchandising and, and selling, and between the Yankeedom and and the South, uh, neither of which did business with one another. Um, there was uh, well, I'm going to read a little bit from the book because it's fascinating, and I also wanted to mention something. Um, New Netherland was founded in 1624, just four years after the Mayflower voyage and six years ahead of the Puritans' arrival in Massachusetts Bay. Its capital and principal settlement, New Amsterdam, was clustered around the wooden fort, the wooden Fort Amsterdam, which stood where the Museum of the American Indian is now located next to Battery Park and Bowling Green, where the Dutch had their cattle market. When New Amsterdam was conquered by the English in 1664, the city extended only as far as Wall Street, where, in fact, the Dutch had built a wall. The main road, Breedweg, Broadway, passed through a gate in the wall and continued on 
past farms, fields, and forests to the village of Harlem on the north end of the island. Ferrymen rode goods and people across the East River to Lang Elant and the villages of Brooklyn, Brooklyn, Vlissingen, Flushing, Vlackboss, Flatbush, and New Utrecht, now a Brooklyn neighborhood, or across the harbor to Hoboken and Staten Island. The area had about 1,500 inhabitants. Now, um, I was born and raised in uh, Vlissingen or Flushing. So, so to read that there was a place as far back as the, you know, in, in the mid-1600s uh, that I grew up in, uh, which I always considered just this kind of, you know, working class yeah. uh, armpit of Queens. Did you ever wonder or know what the origin of the name was, like Flushing? No. No, I didn't, yeah, didn't even, like, because if, if I were raised in a place called Flushing, I'd wonder, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I got flushed <laughs> right out of there. Uh, and there were other areas I sort of grew up in. Um, but the area was very interesting because it was known, you know, I, I grew up in a project known as Pamanak, which was named after a, a group of Indians in the vicinity. Uh, so this is a place that even if it didn't have, you know, uh, it, it didn't retain any of, um, well, that's just the point. It did retain a lot of yeah. its multiculturalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, its culture is multiculturalism. Yes, and and it was highly tolerant. I mean, of course, it it there was uh, for a very long time a very kind of um, politically middle of the road um, uh, sensibility. People worked. Uh, you didn't see any any serious, you know, kind of libtardian. Uh, sentiments in the 70s and 80s. Uh, John F. Kennedy came to Pominock when he was campaigning um, for president in, in the early 60s and, and, uh, or late 50s, whenever he was campaigning. I mean, this was a, uh, I guess it, you know, I, I guess it, it, it's, it, it's, uh, it, it's remarkable that, um, that, well, it's not remarkable. Part of the point of the book is that these, these influences have lasted for so long. It's like a, it's like this this uh, this template of uh, of ideas or of of how to live have been impressed upon the people generation through generation. Yeah, um, and but to the people who live it, it just is so matter of fact. It's like you know, it's like the nose on your face, right? You just think that everyone has one, and then that's just that's just normal. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that you have all of these nations, and there's all of these differences that are unspoken and unknown, and you're unaware of these differences. I mean, like the real, like the the real root of these differences. Obviously, there you know, there's there's a few things you know, like you know, you're aware of. Well, you know, like we've been talking about with slavery and, you know, the Yankees and these and that Puritanical Californians. That, and Californians and you're aware of them. But at the same time, we don't really take them extremely. We don't really take them seriously, you know, and that's the thing that has kind of shocked me for a long time is just how important culture is in general, just being aware of, of culture and how it operates. Because I remember reading a book about these early anthropologists and their you know, their confrontation with, you know, this, this native tribe, it wasn't really a confrontation, but they went to study this native tribe and they were, obviously they were shocked 
You know, I mean, they, and there it was like this common thing that you, there was like this some kind of a, an experience that you would undergo as an anthropologist as you started to realize that this is like the same species as you, but they are everything they do is completely, <laughs> completely different. One, there was one tribe that the young men, in order to be initiated into manhood, had to uh, circumcise themselves, and that was how you became a man. And if you didn't circumcise yourself then you were considered a woman and you were unclean. And so that was just a matter of course, that was just part of their culture. And of course, as an anthropologist, when you do, when you go and you spend years and you, you don't go native, but you're, you're a professional. So you, you just spend years studying these tribes. You go back and you write papers, whatever, maybe you teach a class and you go back and you study them. They're, they're kind of, I think there develops some sort of a mental illness, you know, and some sort of a pathological thing starts where you're just questioning everything that you take for granted and all of these other things. And that's where I think a lot of that postmodern, all reality is just pure language. All reality is, is fake. There's no real truth because I do things this way. You do things that way. We do things this way. Well, it's not, that's not true at all. What's, what's true is that there's vastly different value systems that exist in conscious beings. You know, you just, every, there's so many, this, from what we've been talking about, you can have at the top of the value hierarchy, you have money for some people, others, there's religious purity, what, you know, for others, it's liberty. It's, you know, my, my liberty, my estate, you know, or the liberty of my fellow liberated men or however you want to put it. There's, um, there's still one reality, but there's a value systems that can just stretch on for who knows how far, you know, there's obviously some that, you know, according to your value system, that's better than others. And I think there are value systems that are objectively better than others. And you know, those by the fruits of, of the society, right? You can, you can see, and you're attracted, you know, things that become, that are beautiful, things that are effective, things that produce benefits for other people. You say, that's good, Mm -hmm. you know, as a value, that's a good thing. And, you know, other systems like, you know, in the deep South, like you were saying, those Barbados, you know, just a slave society or like in Jamestown or was it Jamestown? No, it was, this was the Tidewater. Um, so his one that is demonstrably bad. Here's the founding of Tidewater. I just want to read this right. really quick. So in the traditional account of the Jamestown story, the dashing Captain John Smith leads a can-do party of adventurers as they hunt for gold, fight with savages, and seduce Indian princesses. They construct a fort, tough out the winners, and build the foundations of quote-unquote real American society, bold, scrappy, and individualistic. So everyone's familiar with this story. We all know what this is. Well, in reality, the first lasting English colony in the New World was a hellhole of epic proportions, <laughs> successful only in the sense that it survived at all. Founded by private investors, it was poorly planned, badly led, and foolishly located. With much of the American seaboard at their disposal, the leaders of the Virginia Company chose to build on a low-lying island surrounded by malarial swamps on the James River, a sluggish body of water that failed to carry away the garbage and human Human waste the colonists dumped into it, creating a large disease incubator. To make matters worse, almost none of the settlers knew anything about farming. Half were haughty gentlemen adventurers. The rest, beggars and vagrants, rounded up on the streets of London and sent to the New World by force. In quotes, a more damned crew hell never vomited. A more damned crew hell never vomited, the Virginia Company president later said of them. I mean, most of these people, they refused to work. Even when we were starving to death, they refused to work. They, they, they talk about one guy, he, he murdered his wife. 
you know these kinds of these his these stories wife. his pregnant wife he he murdered her and he ate her you know that's just and the, and like he he goes on story after story a lot of them just they didn't even want it they didn't want to go out and do any work they they would rather die than actually go out and do any work and they and they all went there thinking this is what they thought they thought that the indians would be so overwhelmed by their impressive technology that they would just immediately be the rulers of the continent <laughs> i mean the more narcissistic there, the and stupid and idea the same thing <laughs> yeah it's not as ridiculous well that that reminded me of something that uh that i read in murray rothbard's book because while i've been reading this um I've also been listening to the audiobook of uh, of Murray Rothbard's history of pre-revolutionary America. Uh, it's like this four-volume thing, so it's super long. So I've just been, you know, listening to it like I listen to podcasts. But um, when he's talking about these original companies, you know, because these original colonies were set up, you know, they as companies, so they were privately owned. You know, they were enterprises, and the the early economies of some of these colonies were essentially communist in nature. So the company had set it up so that everyone worked, everyone had to work, and then everyone got an equal share. But and that was a big contributor, at least in Rothbard's view, to why a lot of these people didn't want to work. There were m- numerous reasons, but there was there was no incentive for them to to actually work for themselves because no matter what they got, they only got you know a pittance, and the company got everything else. So they were like they were ruled by their corporate overlords, and uh, and in that case, they were just like, well, you know, screw it, you know, I'm not going to work. And then as soon as they introduced like private property, essentially, then then things took off, and and farms started doing well, and they thought, oh, well, that's kind of a good idea. I guess if we just let people, you know, make as much as they want to make. Um, that'll actually work, and it worked, you know, because then they then they actually started producing, and uh, and and the, the 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 colonies ended up well, you know, thriving to a degree. They were still ruled corporately, and they they still had all these other kind of negative features. But uh, that was just kind of one of the the economic points that you know Rothbard makes as a, as an economist. But um, um, well, one other thing, like about tidewater, and well, tidewater, and um, and the Yankees. Um, and their kind of um, their attitude attitude toward the Indians. I want to come back to that because um, Woodard just mentions it briefly, and uh, Rothbard gets into it a bit more in detail. Um, so this is another example of just that carrying over of of cultures and similarities. The the colonists that came over, the the tactics and the strategy that they used was directly um, directly copied from the British strategies towards the Irish against the Indians and to other colonies. So if you, um, I, don't have a, I don't have a great history of, um, you know, Irish history and, and, and that, you know, I've got idea, I, you know, bits about it that I've learned. And of course, you know, um, you know, Joe and Neil, who are doing Newsreel, have a, a, you know, a better idea of this. But that, you can, so there's a, a comparison to be made between the treatment of the Irish by the British and the treatment of the, the Indians. And there are so many examples in, in both these books of just like the, the like downright treachery mm-hmm. of these colonists. Like it is, it is like, it's just sickening, especially once you, you know, after you've read how the, the new French and even the, even the Spanish, you know, um, even taking into account the, the, like the negative parts of their treatment of of the of the indians it was just like just one example and this is just one of many like um let me find it here the well first i'll preface this by saying that the the colonies themselves would fight amongst each other and oftentimes there'd be a like a battle or some kind of you know invasion they'd be like okay well we want to we want to take over their colony so we're gonna you know get together a fighting force a militia and go take it over 
So there'd be battles, and then at one point, you know, one side would surrender, and they'd, so they'd make an agreement. It's like, okay, so we surrender. Um, we'll come over with you guys to, like, hash out the terms of surrender. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and the, the other side would say, okay, well, we, we guarantee your safety, and uh, that sounds like a good idea. So the one side would surrender, and as soon as they surrendered, the side that accepted their surrender would just either kill them or, you know, put them in jail or, you know, assault them in some other way. Like, there was no, uh, no sense of living by your word, like, no honesty. It was just just like the, the most cutthroat environment possible. And, the, and <laughs> we haven't talked about the Appalachians either, but uh, they're probably the most, the most cutthroat of the bunch. But, um, but let me read this. Oh, where, I know I ha- Yeah, okay. So I've got this one example just, uh, just to kind of put it into perspective. So um, where to start? I'll just read this paragraph. It's kind of long, but it'll be good. So, while the gentlemen of New France were inviting Micmac chiefs to their gastronomic competitions, hungry Virginians resor- resorted to extorting corn from the Powhatan Indian, the, the Powhatan's Indians by force, triggering a cycle of violence. The Indians ambushed one raiding party, killed all 17 soldiers, stuffed their mouths with corn, and left the corpses for the English to find. John Smith led another party to try to capture Powhatan and instead stumbled into another ambush. Brought before the chief, Smith was subjected to the Indians' adoption ritual, a mock execution interrupted by the chief's 11-year-old daughter, Pocahontas, and theatrical ceremony which, from the Indians' point of view, made Smith and his people into Powhatan's vassals. Smith interpreted the situation differently. The child, overwhelmed by his charm, had begged that he be spared. Smith, Smith returned to Jamestown and carried on as if nothing had happened or nothing had changed, flabbergasting the Indians. Skirmishes eventually led to massacres, and in 1610, the English wiped out an entire Indian village, throwing its children into a river and shooting them for sport. Pocahontas herself was captured in 1613, married off to a colonist, and sent back to England, where she died of illness a few, a few years later. The Indians gained revenge in 1622, launching a surprise attack on the expanding colony that left 370, uh, 347 English dead, a third of Virginia's entire population. The English offered peace the following spring, but poisoned the drinks they served at the treaty ceremony and slaughtered all 250 attendees. Warfare would continue off and on for decades. It's like, uh, you know, it's like the Red Wedding in Game yeah. of Thrones. Yeah, it's like Game of Thrones, pretty yeah. much. I mean, and, and uh, you know, you used the word treachery. Um, we're, we're looking at all of these uh, seemingly disparate pieces of, of these different nations uh, that, that uh, formed the DNA of American thinking and methodology and modus operandi and, and, um, and approaches to things. And, um, you know, again, going back to uh, grade school history, you know, you, you read about the, the revolution, uh, the U.S. revolution and, and uh, revolutionaries and, and um, you know, the, the U.S. citizenry uniting to fight uh, against British rule and 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 come away with uh, a real uh, independence um, away from the yoke of uh, British tyranny and um, and you know Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves uh, that's what the Civil War was about no no kind of nuance there um, and uh, I, I it's like I want to say something about how all of this 
brought us to where we are today uh, with the U.S. Because um, w- when you read about all this treachery, when you read about the uh, the the Northern British and the Scots who came into uh, the U.S. and and formed the Appalachia Group. Um, and and how they went on raiding parties and, and just wanted to live on their own and, and were basically a kind of uh, mass population of thugs who, <laughs> who it's not that simple, but it, it, it approaches it in some ways. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's incredible. You know, it's sort of, it's, you know, you have to imagine that, yes, you have, you had a lot of innovation, you had a lot of um, s- sincere attempts at, uh, at building um, uh, religiously free, uh, civilized communities. Uh, you also had, you know, all of these different sensibilities coming up that, that might have been ostensibly good. But the amount of, um, the amount of carnage uh, that was um, an unnecessary carnage, um, vicious uh, killings in mass that came to form the U.S., probably not unlike many other nations that were European or Asian, uh, because history is a history of suffering and war. But it's like, it's like in spite of the, the mythology of, of George Washington insisting that he wouldn't be king, he would be president, and despite you know, Benjamin Franklin and, and the Founding Fathers coming up with the Declaration of Independence, and and uh, later on the Bill of Rights and and the Constitution, um, this is a this is a country built on uh, a lot of death and destruction and connivance, and uh, and that's how this country has been maintained uh, among a certain elite uh, who who have refined a lot of their. Um, their methods and and have become the intelligence agencies and have and all have their kind of angle on fleecing half the world of its of its of its blood and 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 toil and and its uh, and its soul. Um, so of course the United States isn't all that. I think these things largely occur um, in ignorance uh, on the part of many people in the country. Uh, but uh, you know all, all of the all of these shenanigans we're reading about certainly go some way to explaining the um, the pathological DNA of the U.S. Um, I don't know. And any any thoughts on that? Well, it's not just the U.S. Then, because it's also coming from um, all of the places where they came from. You know, all of the Puritans from England. I mean. You know, these were things that were occurring in all of these other places. So it's not just America's DNA, but all of these other places as well. They have these same or similar, like, treacherous beginnings as well. I think there's definitely, like, whenever you're starting a some sort of a group, or th- I think there's, there's a number of questions that, you know, or I don't know if questions is the right word, but there's another number of challenges that, Mm-hmm. present themselves and you know they're probably just across the board you're gonna i mean if you're gonna face these challenges you know how are you gonna make money how are you gonna feed yourself how are you gonna defend yourself how are you going to allot power who is going to have power you know all of these different questions and challenges they you know just normal people 
have to solve them based on their normal, their limited knowledge, their, you know, their programmed conditions, childhoods, their upbringings, the societies that they're coming from, the cultures that they're coming from, and their own, you know, just narcissism, you know, just, just people, you know, like kind of smarter apes, you know, like a lot of people, you know, you think about the average American and realize that the other half is dumber than that. You know, that kind of, you're looking at a lot of just stupidity, right? There's a, there's a lot of stupidity in the world. And when you're faced with all of these challenges, it's a lot easier to go with just simplistic, whatever, more, you know, there's moralistic, whatever kinds of just easy answers, you know, like, but the question of how do you deal with the, this other people, you know, you see it, how, uh, the, you know, the Jamestown or the, the Tidewater settlement, you know, they're like, well, we're just going to go over and just, they're going to worship us as our, as gods and they're going to be our slaves. Or you look at new France, they're like, how are we going to deal with these others? It's like, well, we're going to network with them. We're going to share knowledge and we're going to build relationships so that we can both prosper. And you, well, you look at the, you know, which one worked, you know, obviously there's just different ways of solving this problem based on, you know, your values. Do you see them as human beings? I mean, do you, you know, are you, can you actually, have you even tried, you know, actually establishing some form of relationship? You know, there's, there's all of these different ways of going about things, but you know, if you just, uh, if you're if you start with a bunch of narcissistic idiots, then that's the you know that's the kind of crazy mess that you're going to get into. It's just this huge labyrinth of all of these twists and turns and challenges and you know minotaurs and monsters and all this stuff that people have been struggling to you know adapt to, survive, not get crushed by for you know just millennia and millennia and millennia and god knows it's not it's probably not easy to unite an entire kingdom you know it probably takes some massive um, fortitude to be able to you know to and and bloodshed too you know to be able to unite a kingdom it's not easy you don't just go hey guys i'm going to be your leader now stop fighting and killing each other you know stop being a bunch of idiots it's just the the it's the, it's the dilemma that we live in. It's not going to be easy. It's never going to be pretty. And, you know, we just, as individuals, make the best choices that we can. Try not to get sucked into it when a whole mob full of idiots decides that it's time to go, you know, attack the Indians because, hey, you know, we're drunk and, <laughs> and you know, it's, uh, they're, they're evil and we're going to take their corn. Mm. Well, the, one of the themes that kind of sticks out for me reading this and Rothbard is kind of that... While the United States has uh, has this self-image as being like the home of freedom, it's really more accurate to say that the the history of the United States up to the present is there's a, a like a, a like a wave like a sine wave of of the battle for freedom, like the fight for freedom. Um, and at, at some time, at some points it's, you know, it's, it's rising and there's, there, there's glimpses of it shining through. And at other times it's, it just goes down completely to, to no freedom, but some, some gains are, are held over time. So it's not like today in the United States, it's a totally unfree society. There are elements of freedom that still remain. Some that have been acquired and taken away and others that were never there in the first place. Um, that were only there in kind of potential, and because because uh, you you look at the the histories of all these colonies and just the individual struggles that they all went through, 
um, and, and different types of struggles too. But um, going back to the Quakers, it's like the Quakers, the that that colony, that settlement, it was it was a, a constant struggle to keep what they had gained and then losing it. And in the other colonies, that there were there were um, you know struggles for freedom that never came to fruition. Um, um, and others where it was kind of like this mix of the two. Like you look at the history of indentured sla- indentured servants, which were essentially um, temporary slaves. Um, there, well, there. So there are differences there. So there was the kind of the the slave society of the the deep south, where there was no um, no social or economic mobility. It was you were in the slave class or you weren't. Um, with the indentured servants um, in. Well, in Tidewater, even in Tidewater, um, there were there were rich blacks, for instance, that were not slaves, and that was totally accepted. Um, there wasn't a, there wasn't as much of a, a racial component to it, but with the indentured servants, who were essentially slaves, they you know once their term was up, if they managed to to work off their term, they could then they were then free. Well, you know, free according to the the limited definitions of the time and place. Um, a lot of under, other indentured servants would just get fed up. And go go native essentially. They'd you know move out and and live with the Indians, um, and that happened in New France too. You know the people that came at the bottom end of the social spectrum were like they weren't getting what they what they expected or what they wanted, and so they they at, at that point had the you know had the freedom to to leave that society completely and enter a new society. So it's this it's it's a complex picture. There's this complex battle of uh, you know the, this opposition between um, you know, control and and uh, and oppression and and the the struggle against that. And sometimes that struggle went somewhere. Sometimes it never did. And and uh, but the 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 fruits and the results of that, and just the just the presence of that past is all within the present. So um, so it's hard to well, it's easy to make like blanket statements. And all those blanket statements will be will be true in some cases, but there's always there's always like a, a different subtext or an area in which that doesn't apply, and um, and I think that becomes clearer by reading this history. You get the idea of this, you know, the waxing and waning of these of these trends and these uh, and these struggles, and oftentimes it's. It's uh, horrific. Oftentimes, there are heroes, um, you know, p- people that you that you really admire for what they did, what they accomplished, or what they were struggling to accomplish. And then other times, you know, like I said, it's just like uh, you you just there are villains. There are just absolute villains in these stories in this history. And um, and but like you said, Alon, it's like that's the that's the history of the United States. It's it's the history of humanity. It's it's the same in every country. You know, any country you live in, you go back far enough, either in the present or in the past, and you find these you find these conflicts and you find these this this struggle of values. Um, and 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 there's so I, I use the image of that like sine curve. Well, there's multiple of those. Like at all times and in all places, and that sometimes you'll have you know a bit of good that shines through, while there's other other bits of just pure evil that are manifesting, and other times those bits of evil you know recede into the into the darkness where they belong, and uh, well, and others come th- come forward. So in like modern uh, modern American history, I think we have um, like new new manifestations of old evils. We have some new evils that probably 
couldn't be imag imagined back then. Um, but we also have the entire history of that, including um, including some of those original values, like the good values that are held on to, um, that in some cases will be held on to sincerely and with uh, with like authenticity and conviction, and other times where they are recycled and um, like um, turned into into slogans or empty you know empty empty words that don't actually have any any significant uh, meaning. Like, so just the, the word freedom itself, like when, when America exports freedom in, in warfare, what they're actually practicing is that, is that technique borrowed from the war on, the war and like the oppression of the Irish and the Indians and the other colonists. And, and it, that's the Yankee freedom. That's the, that's the freedom to oppress. That's not the freedom of the, of the Quakers to be free from oppression. That's like those are those are incompatible ideas of freedom, mm -hmm. and um, and so the in in the cases of like foreign intervention of exporting freedom to other nations, it hasn't been an ex an export of uh, you know any kind of productive or you know I'd say value laden freedom. It has been that it has been that that uh, that libertas that the, the liberty to to take and impose one's will on someone who doesn't want it. And that is totally antithetical to the other idea of freedom, you know, to be free from the coercion and oppression of, of like the, well, the, the power elite essentially, or just any other group, you know, that, that whatever group it is that wants to impose its will and, and coerce the people underneath it to, to achieve their own ends. That's totally antithetical to, to this other vision of freedom, which which is a subtext and a current within American history, you know, so I agree a hundred percent. I uh, I think that's why history just this book just exemplifies why history is so important in terms of just understanding what you know the world around you. You've got you know for all of the, whatever theories that you have, political theories, political biases, or whatever. History is history. You know, it's what happened. It's complex, it's chaotic, it's messy. But, like, if you don't, when you, you know, just by reading this book, you just gain so much insight into, you know, all of these these vast dramas, you know, that are still ongoing in yeah. front of us. And you just, you just, you know, it's like being blind and mute, really. You just miss out on so much of the color of, you know, of the reality that's all around you without just history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's as though uh, I agree, Corey. It's 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 as though you know by holding uh, uh, a spyglass to history, we're we're looking um, we're using a mirror to exactly where we are today, where people are uh, observing what the other half is saying or what some other group is saying, and it's just their their words and sentiments or values are completely unfathomable. Uh, to a to a whole segment of of one population, and you know there are these disparate groups in the U.S. today, one looking at the other, that that you know they might as well be uh, from another planet, given given the way they think on things, and uh, and to know that it's always been that way, uh, to some degree or another, um, and informed by by different values based on where these people came from and what their visions of the future were um you know it it helps one to reconcile 
the fact that there will always be differences. Um, and, you know, ultimately, you know, is the United States a successful experiment? Is it the shining city on the hill? Is it the, uh, this, this chosen land of freedom and opportunity? Freedom! Yeah, yes and no. Uh, it, it's managed to kind of uh, manifest all of these different visions, and and quietly export all the terror that it could that it could muster uh, abroad, uh, where where it does so in in ways that most people don't understand. So that you know there's this um, there's this kind of semblance of of uh, placidity, um, not as much anymore. But a, but a, sen- a semblance of cohesion uh, that gets kind of um, it, it sits atop this this uh, this malevolence that gets that gets ex- exported abroad. Mm-hmm. So, well, um, I think well we'll end. I got one other just little topic to to bring up, but we'll we'll, we'll end pretty soon. I think maybe sometime in the future. It might be fun to uh, to get into some more later history because we basically covered kind of the the founding of these nations. We didn't really get into the far west or the left coast um, because those were actually more recent developments. So maybe we'll get for a bit further into history in you know the coming weeks sometime, uh, including the the revolution um, or the revolutions because it the, as Woodard makes clear, you know the American Revolution wasn't a, a singular thing. There were actually many many cross purposes and different agendas going on, um, at that time. But one thing before we do end, um, I'd want to just do a quick, quick movie recommendation thing. Like, uh, so if you want to, if you want to get like a, a visual representation of the, of the time period, like 17th century, well, you also, you already mentioned, uh, Arthur Miller's The Crucible as a play, but there are a few movies, um, uh, a few movies to check out, maybe a couple books too. Um, the New World, of course, the Terence Malick's uh, with you know John Smith and Pocahontas, um, mm. not completely historically accurate um, in in various areas, but very um, authentically shot. Like so, what you're seeing is is as good a representation of the you know what things looked like at that time. And of course, you know there are some there are some things they get right, but you know some things that are changed for narrative purposes. Um, and then another one, this is a novel by a Canadian author um, called The Black Robe. Um, and that was made into a movie, I believe, in the 80s. Um, just, again, in this time period. I believe that one's in, uh, in New France, <clears throat> so to get that perspective. And then one I haven't seen yet, but that I want to see, um, not as historically accurate, but set in that time period, is uh, The Witch. You know, the VV Itch, you know, Witch. Um, came out a couple of years ago. It's more of a horror movie about, uh, you know, inspired by the the kind of witch hunts of the time. Um, that one, I believe, takes place... They, they set it in the 1630, I believe. Um, so very early. So I think that was even like a generation between but before the Salem witch trial, something like that. Um, and then I only read the first book of this, but uh, this is an author I think you like, Ilan, uh, Neil Stevenson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's written like Cryptonomicon and uh, Snow Crash... That was the one, and uh, I can't remember what his other big one was, but um, the Diamond Age, and yeah, um, yeah, he's got a few that are. He's a he's a pretty well known kind of like uh, kind of sci-fi author, but um, but he he wrote a 
like a an eight volume like mm-hmm. um, historical fiction um, bit. I can't remember. I think it's called the. Is that the Diamond Age or was it a different? No, one? no. It's, no, it was. Um, I, I didn't read it because it's. Yeah. It's well, I've got. It. I read the the first long. the first book. You know, which is it's like you know eight novels, so like. 250, 300 pages each. Mm-hmm. I read the first one. It's called Quicksilver. Can't mm-hmm. remember the name of the series, but it's set um, not exclusively not exclusively in that time period and not exclusively in the states. But it gives an idea of that of that time period. You know, they go over to Massachusetts for a while, and there's and it's got all these like um, um, all these historical characters too, because it's also about the rise of science. So you get to you get to meet like Newton and Leibniz and all this stuff. So just to get back, you know, to get in that time period, you can check that one out if you like. Um, and, uh, who knows, maybe we'll do a, a show on <laughs> movies set in the 17th century at some time or something like that. But I have a, I have a quick, uh, film recommendation yeah. along those lines as well. Not set in the 1700s, but, uh, more the 1840s to, to 60s. And that's Martin Scorsese's Gangs of New York, oh, yeah. uh, which is wonderful. Um, because you really get a sense of place, uh, if it's correct. And I, I would tend to think it is. Um, given the amount of research uh, I read that was done. Mm. And uh, there are some hellacious events that are historically correct that, that occur in New York City around the time of the Civil War and, and acts that the government had to take around constricting, uh, uh, around drafting New Yorkers to get involved in the war. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had the draft riots and, and you had all of these events that, uh, that again, you know, if you're if you're a school kid in in the U.S., you're not likely to have heard about. Uh, and so the the period detail is wonderful. The storytelling is great. The acting is great. Daniel Day Lewis, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, um, and a bunch of great character actors. Gangs of New York. I've seen it a, a number of times. All right. That said, see you guys. Thanks. Take care, everyone.